message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Perhaps one of the most uh, the things that we get wrong about our faith sometimes is that when we think that God, when he brings things to our conscience that happened maybe five years ago, ten years ago, in this case 20 years ago, that that's kind of cruel, that God shouldn't do that, that he, you know, we buried that, that's in the past, we left that behind. And uh, yet if there wasn't really a, a repentance and kind of a restoration of, of that, if it's still broken, don't be surprised that out of love, not out of meanness, but out of love, that God wouldn't bring something back up into our lives. And that's not for us to sit there and just be afraid that something's going to jump out of the closet, our life's closet at us. But guys, I'm just saying don't be surprised. Because what we may take as God's, that's just being mean. That happened a long time ago. That's not really even important anymore. God is so concerned with restoration in our lives. First and foremost, restoration with him, a holy God. That's why he provided Christ. But even relationship uh, are uh, uh, coming together and, and our relationships being reformed and made complete. That's kind of the situation here. For 20 years, Joseph's brother, for the most part, have not had to pay a really big price for their sin. I mean, they had at first contemplated murdering their own brother. Now, I know that there's a lot of us that grew up with brothers and sisters, and we said, you know, I will take you out. And we may have the thought crossed our mind, but we really didn't really think, okay, there's a knife in the other room or there's a gun. In the, you know, we really didn't come up with a plan. We just had the anger part of it. Well, they actually came up with a plan. They actually came up with something in their mind that said, okay, we're going to do this. And they had kind of conceived this whole plot to kill their brother. Why? Because they were just, they didn't like him. They were jealous of him because he was the favorite son. And we talked about that many, many weeks ago about that generational sin that just been, had been paced, passed down all the way from Abraham now to Jacob and his sons. But they ended up because the oldest brother said, you know, we really don't want his blood on our hands. We really don't want to kill him, but let's get rid of him. Let's sell him off. And it just so happened that there were some people coming by that were going to head down to Egypt. And they were part of a, a slave market. And so they, they bought him. They were going to sell him as a slave. And uh, they, they did that. And for the most part, they thought that this was the end of Joseph. For the most part, maybe when they got away with it, when they went home and told dad about it, they showed that coat of many colors, but now it was drenched in blood. And they said, we don't know what happened. It looks like maybe a fierce animal came and, and ate up our beloved brother. You know, when, when you didn't get called in the first hour, when you don't get called in the first day, when you don't get called in the first week or the first month or the first year, are you thinking that maybe, okay, I'm not saying it was right, but I'm in the clear. 20 years later is where we pick up Genesis chapter 42. 20 years later. I would imagine that in one way, that maybe the thought of Joseph, their brother, and what they had done had never left their mind. I don't know if you've ever had that torment of something that's undecided or unresolved, not undecided, unresolved in your life, and how you're not trying to think about it, but all of a sudden, have you ever had that, that thing that was unresolved? And you're just going about your day. You're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and all of a sudden that comes to your mind, and you're going, great. That was seven years ago. That was 12 years ago. That was 15 years ago. Why does it still keep kind of haunting me? 
I imagine there was a measure of that, but as far as really having to pay a price for it, of really getting caught, I think 20 years you're thinking, okay, shh, at least I didn't have to pay the full price of that. And that's when we open up and we begin to find out that God is still working in the midst and we're still ever running to Genesis 50:20. that every one of these chapters, and I would say that this chapter especially is running to this place of finality that God is going to say, you know, you meant this as evil, that evil does exist, and evil is a lot of times in our own hearts and our own makings, and yet God can take even that evil, and when we bring it to him, he can do something good. And God is in the midst of doing that in Joseph's life, in his brother's life. And so we're running to this verse, we're, we're rapidly approaching that as we enter into chapter 42 here, and we find out, that everything that God said was going to happen in Pharaoh's dreams, remember that's kind of what made Joseph kind of uh, get this position of second in command. Pharaoh had some dreams that he didn't know how to interpret. Uh, Joseph gets out of jail. He interprets the dreams. He says, basically, you're going to have seven years of bumper crop, and then you're going to have seven years of the most severe famine that you could ever imagine. But there's a plan. During those years of a bumper crop, let's put back one-fifth of all that we have in this bumper crop, since it's going to be excess anyway, store it in the cities. And then when the seven years come, that there's just nothing there, at that time we'll we'll have provision. Well, they put that into place, and when we pick up chapter 42, that has happened. Seven years of a bumper crop. They have made provision. They have stored it every place that they could, and they were even told in the last chapter that they stopped counting. They had so much. They stopped counting. Now, anybody here have so much money that you stopped counting? (laughs) I mean, wouldn't that... Can you imagine that there would ever be a time in your life that you had so much money that you stopped counting? I mean, there's a lot of us that would sign up for that deal just to see if the theory worked or not. But can you ever have so much of something that you stop counting? That's the, the, you know, how much they had of these crops. And, and now the severity of this famine has come, and now they're drawing upon it to the place where we saw in the very last verse of chapter 41 that the severe famine hit all the world, and people from all over the world were now coming to Egypt. It just so happens that people from Israel where Jacob and his brothers lived. They were having famine. And so it draws them to this place of of plenty, Egypt. Look what happens, Genesis chapter 42, verse 1 through 3. When Jacob, he's the dad of these 12 sons, uh, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? In other words, go do something. They're they're all probably sitting around, uh, grown men, I'm hungry, They're complaining because they're hungry. And it's kind of like, guys, sometimes there's a man, I'm really hungry. And your wife would go, the kitchen's right in there. (laughs) You know? And he kind of says, he said, okay, go do something about it, guys. So look at verse 2. And it says, they said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain uh, for us there that we may live and not die. I don't think he's being dramatic. I don't think Jacob is being overly dramatic like, okay, you know, kids. As a kid, we said, man, I'm so hungry I could starve to death. And very few of us have ever, ever been in that position. But in our mind, we were kind of embellishing it. 
We were being dramatic. I don't believe that Jacob is being dramatic here. I think that it's the severity has hit Israel like it has the rest of the world. They don't have food. They are not just hungry. They are very hungry to the point where they could die. And so he says, okay, guys, go to Egypt, buy this grain, buy food for us so that that we won't die. Verse 3, so ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain. The ten. Joseph is the eleventh. They have a youngest. His name is Benjamin. He's now dad's favorite because Jacob really didn't learn his kind of fault there with Joseph about having a favorite. He now has a favorite. And guys, you can kind of understand when you look at the whole family history why Benjamin was the favorite. There was two sons that Jacob had with his, if you want to say, favorite wife. I know that's kind of a foreign concept to us, uh, to have multiple wives. And, uh, but, but, you know, they married and he had several wives. If you remember the story of how he wanted Rachel, but he got Leah instead. And he had two sons with this favorite, his, the real love of his life. And that was Joseph and now Benjamin. And, and so Jacob sends the ten other brothers, but he doesn't send Benjamin. Look at verse 4. It says, But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to them. Now, I don't know about you. But a couple of weeks ago when I asked you, how many of y'all had, you know, brother, sister, and how many of you, you weren't the favorite child? And many of y'all raised your hands during that time. So here, do you see what's happening? He sends the ten, but he keeps Benjamin back. Why? Because he doesn't want anything to happen to Benjamin. Now, if you read the other ten, there's an assumption that you can kind of make here, Okay. He doesn't really care if something bad happens to me. I think I've shared this story before. I, I hate if I, if I bore you with it. But, you know, my, my sister is seven years younger. One of my sisters is seven years younger. And, uh, you know, when I was old enough to drive, you know, I got a gremlin that I had to pay for myself. And uh, AMC Gremlin, you, if you don't even know what that is, that's, I, that, that is the most un-chick magnet car ever made in the world. No air conditioner, no anything. So my sister comes along, it's seven years later, she doesn't have to pay for her car, she gets a new car. If you remember back, I guess this would have been the mid-80s, a Ford Probe GT, it was the coolest car that Ford made at the time, candy apple red, had every feature on it, and you know, I'm out of the house by that time, and so I come to dad one day, as he's washing my sister's car, which he never washed my car. I said, Dad, I was just wondering, you know, as you're washing her car here, I, I had a gremlin. She has a Ford Gremlin. I had to pay for mine. You bought this for her. Why? And I'll never forget his answer. Do you want your sister stuck on the side of the road with a broken down car? That, I'm, I'm being as honest as I know. That's exactly said. Well, you can't answer that any other way. So, no, but there's an assumption you make. You really didn't care if I was broken down on the side of the road in a 73 AMC Gremlin. He probably was figuring at that point that people would just drive on. Danger, danger, you know, drive on. That's what happens here. 
And the brothers don't. They, they go off and they actually go to Egypt. And, and just that thought of Egypt coming back to their minds, I believe that God began to work in their hearts and their minds. They're going, okay, they're going to a land that they knew that they had sent their brother Joseph to. It's been 20 years. They've forgotten maybe some of the, the, the details and all the intimacies of it. They don't know what has happened to Joseph. And, and yet they go down there and I begin that even then God begins to stir their hearts a little bit toward this. Look down at verse 7. They actually go and they have to come before Joseph. Now, I don't think that Joseph met with every single person who was doing trade with Egypt. He's number two in command. You have managers. You have other people to do that. But because of what God is doing here, they actually have audience with their brother, but they don't know that it's him. Why? Because he looks like an Egyptian now. He doesn't look like an Israelite. He's clean-shaven. He's probably bronzed down a little bit. He's probably got on the clothes of like a pharaoh would have, or at least a second command would have. And so he does not look. Plus, it's been 20 years. He was 17. Now he's at least 37, probably 38, 39. He's changed a lot. He doesn't recognize them, but Joseph instantly recognizes them. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said, from the land of Canaan to buy food? I can only imagine that the strange mix of emotions that that you have um, at that point, all, all the things that were going through Joseph's mind. Parents, have you ever had your kids, maybe you said, do not go near the pool, do not go near the lake, don't go... And, and then they went and they fall in and they almost drown. And, and, and you save them. They were disobedient. And so you rush over, you save them, you get them out of the trouble, you grab them, and then you say, I am going to wear you out. <laughs> I mean, seriously, have you ever had those emotions before? Because there was disobedience, and yet that disobedience could have cost you your son or daughter's life. And so you have this mix of emotions. Part of it is love. You love your child. And the reason you said don't go near the pool, don't go near the lake or whatever it is, because you wanted safety. And yet they, they were kids and they went over there. And so there's a part of you that is so relieved that no real harm has come. And there's another part of you that goes, that will never happen again. I can assure you that. And I can only imagine, guys, that that's what Joseph is going through. There is a very human side of, of Joseph. 20 years this has been maybe boiling within him that his brothers sold him off. God is working it out. He's second in command of all of, Jesus, uh, of Egypt. He's working toward this. Joseph has really been a mainstay that whole time. He's kept the faith. And yet these brothers still, these are the ones that sold you into slavery. These are the ones that really almost, <laughs> and would have if it had not been for one brother, taking your life. And so here we, we get this wide mix of emotions, and, and yet there's one thing guiding Joseph in all this. We see it in verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. He remembers that in all of this, that God is sovereign, that God is working out this dream, that this dream that he had 20-plus years before, that one day that his brothers and even his mother and father would bow down to him, that this is what God's plan was for their, his life and for their life. And so this has been kind of kept Joseph on the straight and the narrow all these years, 20-plus years in the making, and now he's beginning to see it come true because when they came in, they did, in fact, bow down before him, not knowing that it was Joseph, but they bowed down. Verse 9, 
And Joseph remembered the, the dreams that he had dreamt of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, guys, you aren't here for food. You're here because you're from another country. And what you want to see is during this famine, are our defenses down? Are we vulnerable? When it talks about the nakedness of the land, it's not talking about the nakedness of the land as far as crops. He says, okay, is this city vulnerable? Is this a great time to invade and take over? He accuses them of being spies that have very ulterior motives. I already said that he spoke really plainly and very forcibly to them. And, and they say to him, now catch this, verse 10 and 11. They don't know that it's their brother. They think it's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are what? No, they're not. <laughs> they really aren't. And yet one thing that they're not is spies. Because look what they say. Your servants have never been spies. Pastor, what's your point there? Guys... <laughs> This is classic of how we deal with some of the faults, some of the sins of our lives. Somebody comes up and says, you know, just recognizing our sin in our life, that we're not perfect creatures. And maybe somebody points that out, especially if it's a spouse that points it out. We really get defensive. I'm being all serious here. We really get defensive. Our pride is kind of wounded. And, and, you know, one of our first things is, well, I've never done this. And our go-to, when God is trying to bring conviction, and maybe for a good reason, trying to bring that conviction to bring us back to a place of restoration and, and repentance and restoration to something that's broken in our lives, and yet we resist it and say, okay, we're honest men. Well, how can we claim that we're honest? Well, because I've never done that. And basically, that's what they're doing here. We're not spies. The half truth. They weren't spies, but they were not honest men. I won't go through the laundry list. Our assistant DA is in the back with the children today, but you know, a rap sheet. He, you know, he has to deal with those kind of things. Well, here's their rap sheet. These are not honest men. Uh, they conspired to murder Joseph in chapter 37. Simeon and Levi had slaughtered the. Uh, this group of people in Genesis 34. Reuben had committed incest with Jacob's concubine in chapter 35. Judah impregnated his daughter-in-law Tamar in chapter 38. That's just a few things, and that's keeping it family friendly. I'm serious, guys. These are not honest men. And yet in their mind, when they're accused of being spies, they do this classic kind of dodge and move. But we're not spies. Yeah, you may not be spies, but you are not honest men. Is it mean for God to make us aware of our sin? I don't know anybody that likes being called out. I didn't mean like called out when I was in first and second grade and I was talking. I didn't like being called out in all the sports that I played when I really wasn't doing some of the fundamentals. I didn't mean like called out and at work with a boss that said, okay, you're supposed to be doing this, and yet you were doing this. And I'm being very honest, guys, that being called out by your wife is, or your, really is, is kind of, it hurts hard. It really does. And yet 
my wife has never called me out out of anger. She's called me out of, out, out of love many times, and I needed that. And, and God allows people in our lives to call us out. Sometimes his word does that. Sometimes it's the very Holy Spirit that, that lives with God himself, that dwells within us as a Christian. He'll call us out. But do not think that when he calls you out that this is mean of God. It is actually a form of grace. Do you think that these brothers would have ever, on their own, had they lived another 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, do you think that they would have ever come to a place on their own without this incident going, you know, we just really feel bad about what happened so many years ago, and we're going to church this Sunday, and we're going to go down that altar, we're going to pray, we're going to get it all right with God, and we're going to start doing, we're going to get a private investigator to see if they can actually find with Joseph, you know, what happened to him. It hasn't happened for 20 years, and I can almost promise you for another 20, 40, 60 years, it was not going to happen. It is the very grace of God. I'm not saying it's comfortable. I'm not saying that we like it. But guys, when God calls you out or when God sends somebody to call you out, even if it's a, a boss who's not even a Christian, and yet they call you out for something that you're not doing at work or that you are doing that you're not supposed to be doing, or it can be a neighbor, it can be anybody. When your kids call you out, accept that as grace. I know, man, I'm the most proud, prideful guy that I know. I have more pride than I can imagine. I do not like being called out. And you're talking about a dodge and a move. Well, yeah, I did that, but you know, I love a lot of people, and I'm a pastor, and I did all these good things too. And you can start, you know, kind of going one way and kind of trying to... Guys, when God is trying to call you out, here's the purpose Because he wants repentance, that is a change of mind, and he wants restoration. It is not because God is just a mean God, and he wants you to know, I'm perfect, and you're not. Let me give you a whole list of things that you do imperfectly. God calls us out because he wants us to come to him and get things right. And that's what happens here. They begin to talk in verses 18 through 19. It says, they, they, uh, Joseph begins to converse with them, and he says, look, I still think that you're spies. He knows that they're not, but that's just the story that he comes up with. He does that to create an uneasiness within them because they probably know that being caught as a spy isn't good. It either means you stay in jail for a really long time or your life comes to a pretty quick ending. And so they've kind of made that. They're nervous about that. We're never going to see our father again. We're never going to see home again. They're all nervous. Joseph says, okay, go to jail for three days. I'm going to hold you for three days. The initial thing that Joseph said, uh, tells them is, okay, I want all of you. There's ten of you. I want nine of you are going to be in jail. One will go back and get this youngest brother. Now, he does that as a test. They stay in jail for three days, and he kind of changes the rules a little bit which shows amazing grace. Look what he says. On the third day, verse 18 through 20, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. And then what does he say? For I fear God. I realize there's a whole bunch on that. He says, now, up to this point, he has spoken to them through an interpreter. He has not spoken to them. They don't know that he is Joseph. They don't know that he knows Hebrew. He doesn't know, they don't know that he can, and you read everything that they're doing. He's done everything under kind of this cloak 
of, of, of not being seen and known. Verse 19, he says, If you're an honest man, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry, carry grain for your famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. He basically says, go get, instead of nine of y'all staying here, nine of you go. That way you can carry a lot more grain and you can actually have this grain. You can go feed your family. This is gracious. This is not what Bobby Lincoln would do if I was burned 20 years earlier. And yet we see the grace of, of God through Joseph. So what we said the very first week that Joseph is the closest, really, if you want to say type of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, he's really the closest type of Christ, most commentators say, of anybody in the Old Testament. And, and here he's given grace where grace is not deserved. It's the very definition of grace. Can none of you go back, carry this grain, feed your family, bring your youngest brother Benjamin back, and everything will be okay. And I will know that you're not spies. And this is where we get into the, the central part of this chapter. They hear this new plan, Joseph again them, and, but they also begin to connect with their previous sin. Look, look what begins to stir in their heart. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul and when he begged us, and we did not listen. Now, they're thinking 20 years before, and they're going, remember when we threw Joseph, our brother, into the pit, and he was screaming out bloody murder. He was screaming for his life, and we just left. And this is God's way of now bringing us back to a place of having to pay for this. Because look what the last thing says. This is why this distress has come upon us. They take their previous sin, and they connect it with the present tragedy of their life. And they're not so wrong. But guys, be clear, they didn't see this on their own before. They were just kind of pushing their sin as far away back as they could. And now God has brought it to their attention. They're making connection. Is that mean of God? No, it's the grace of God. It's disturbing for them. Because look what happens. I mean, at first, the oldest, Reuben, <laughs> classic human reaction to accusation. Look at verse 22. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? If we remember what happened 20 years ago, let me just refresh your mind, guys. I was the one vote that said we shouldn't kill him. This is our classic human kind of reaction to any time that we're being called out is, Okay, now remember, I'm bad. I'm just not as bad as Ricky and Bruce. You know, I may not be great. I may not be a champion here, but... I'm going to stand with these guys so I at least look a little bit better. And this is what we do, guys. Instead of standing up to the model of Christ, we just kind of go find somebody that's a little bit less shiny than we are, and we try to make ourselves feel a little bit better. And that's what Reuben does here. He says, so now comes a reckoning for his blood. They make a firm connection, their past sin, with their present condition. And then in verse 24, we see Joseph do something they're talking amongst themselves. They think that he's Egyptian, that he can't understand Hebrew. He understands every word and he hears every word. And it says, and he turned away and he began to weep. Guys, 
this, this Christ that we have. I don't know what kind of vision of God you got if he truly is this, this vision of this heavenly sheriff and he's just waiting for you to get bad and do something wrong so he can throw uh, some kind of terrible lightning bolt to you. Is he a holy God? You better believe it. We will never show you a God that is not holy and just. And yet he's given us Christ. He's not waiting in heaven for Radley for you to mess up one day so he can go, man, I was just waiting for that because I want to lower the beam on you. How many times in my life, in a way, I want to be you know, spiritually correct here and theologically correct, as Christ had to turn away with a tear when he sees rebellion in my heart and my life. At that very point of rebellion, is he ready to throw this lightning bolt down just to get me? No, I've caused the father to cry because it cost him his son. This is not a mean God. This is a God of grace that even in our unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. He's amazing. And he does this in the story. And they're feeling scared. Look what happens. We're about to close. The brothers go on. Uh, for the food. As they're going back, they have to camp. It's, it's more than a day's journey. They have to camp. Uh, one of them goes into their bags, and we're not told which one. He goes into the bag of grain that was given to him, and he finds in that bag of grain the money that was supposed to be given to purchase this grain. He said, oh, no. Now they're going to think that we're thieves and that, we, uh, I mean, that we're spies, and we are thieving spies. Look what he says, verse 28. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And what was their reaction? And their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another. And what did they say? What? what? Yeah, it's the first time, Sherry... In all this passage, when we see the brothers, nowhere in Genesis up to this point do they mention God. First time that the word God comes out of their mouth as a part of their testimony. It's not really a favorable time. They're not worshiping God. They're going, what is it that this God has done? And the word here is Elohim. It's not the personal name of God, but it is the supreme God. And so they're calling out and going, we're in big trouble. They realize in this moment of crisis that they're having to pay for a sin that was committed at least 20 years earlier, and they are trembling, they are faint of heart because they recognize their guilt. And I'm telling you folks this morning, this is the most loving thing that God could ever do in their life. It doesn't feel lovely. If I'm them, I want it swept under that rug for the past 20 years, and I want that rug to be big enough for the next 20 years or 40 years. That's my human condition. That's probably your human persuasion. But I'm just telling you this morning that one of the most loving things that God can ever do in our lives when there's unconfessed sin and there's unresolved sin and there's broken relationships and there's things from the past that are long ago and yet we've kind of thought, okay, didn't have to pay the full price for that. Sometimes out of his love, God can uncover things all for the purpose of restoration, repentance and restoration to get that thing right. As a pastor, as a counselor, I've seen it over and over again. I've seen 
I've counseled with people that said, you know, this happened a long time ago. I said, obviously, it's still disturbing you. you obviously, it's still heavy on your heart. It is. And we give it to talk. And then, you know, I said, well, why, why don't you go talk to them? Ah, oh, it's been 14 years. And they've already written me off. I said, why don't you pray about it and just see if you can go and maybe, you know, by God's grace, this can be resolved. And, and I won't say every time, guys. I won't say every time. But I can't tell you the number of times that families have been brought together, that marriages have been restored, that husband and father, I mean, that uh, 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 father and mother and, and, and children have come together. doesn't happen every time because God gives us free will. But I'm telling you that there's times that I've seen God do this very miracle in the lives of people and bring about restoration where things were completely broken before. This is not a hateful God. This is not a mean God. This is a God of grace and a God of incredible love. And this is, folks, the good news of the gospel. This is the gospel. That we have not walked perfectly before a perfect God. And that perfect, that imperfection has removed us from relationship with him. And yet he provided for us his own son. He said, I love you so much. Your sin has caused me to weep. And I provide a way back. This is the hope that we have. In his kindness and his grace, God will often convict our hearts with our own sin, but not for the purpose where we can just muddle in the mire of that ugly sinfulness and that darkness, but to bring out restoration and hope. We sing a song this morning. We're going to sing it again at the end. Uh, at the cross. You realize when you sing that song this morning that you sing a song that's 311 years old. It's written in 1707 by a guy by the name of Isaac Watts. And somehow we're still singing this song 300 years later. Why? Because it's a pretty good song. But mainly because it's theologically just so accurate. But I want you to notice that there's something that's in this song that uh, is there another slide besides that? I just looked up there and saw. Is there one that has highlights, Mike? They have question marks. Is there one right before that or one right after that? Good, good. That's the one I needed. Yeah, because this is a pretty important point, or I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have called you out, brother. <laughs> my, my bad. <laughs> yeah, it's the only time that, you know, the only time that they even know that there's an umpire is the sound man is when there's a bad call. You know, it's the only time. It's a, it's a thankless job. Thank you, brother. The reason I wanted this is. When we sing that song, did you realize that the first part of that, before we get to the refrain, what's at the end? When it says, and, and did my sovereign die? What's, it's a question mark. Did you realize that before? And, and we sing through there, and these are question marks because he's questioning. Okay, he's not questioning, did God do this? He's going, is this what I deserve? He's, he's questioning, why would, God, why would God do this for me? And then he comes, and what do you see at the very end once we get to this character of God? Exclamation points. He answers the question. He says, yeah. 
I'll tell you what kind of God I have. An amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. 300 years ago, he writes this, and he's, it's almost a picture of what's going on in the brother's mind. They're going, what kind of God do we serve? And then he answers the question. He says, this is the kind of God that we serve. And perhaps this morning you're going, you know, what kind of God? Is he really the sheriff of the sky? Or is this just kind of a good granddaddy gives you everything you want? No, he's holy God, righteous in every way, faithful, because that is who he is. He doesn't try to be faithful. He doesn't work to be faithful. He is faithful. And he's even faithful when we're unfaithful. He provided a way for us that even when we try to sweep things under the, the, the thing, oh, man, I'm glad I didn't have to pay for that. That even if it's still broken, I mean, there's a lot of things in my life that God hasn't brought back. But I'm not saying that he might not if it's still broken and he wants restoration. He's a good God. And when God brings these things to our heart and to our mind, this is a measure of his amazing grace. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, sometimes we, uh, we get this picture of you that you're just kind of a, a God that's easy to pick off. And in one way, Father, you are. Things that we don't even consider unholy, you consider unholy. And, Father, it breaks your heart. And yet, Father, because of your incredible love, you've provided a way for us to have a right standing with you. And, Father, you've even extended that down into the relationships that we have within families and friends. So, Father, my my plea this morning is that, Father, the next time you call me out, on my sin, that I will not see this as something that's mean and you're picky and you're just, you're just trying to ruin my day. Father, will you give me a heart that receives it and says, Father, thank you that by your grace you're pointing out my need because you've already provided an answer to that need. And you've pointed out my sin, but it's because you've provided for me a Savior. So, Father, change the way I think about you in those times when my pride wants to be kind of steadfast. And I want to be like Reuben and say, well, you know, I'm bad. I'm just not as bad as these other guys. Father, help me to see that you are ever rushing my life as you were Joseph and his family to a place where you would take the evil that I have done and you can work it for your good and for your glory. And so, Father, we sing this song as a prayer to you, as a praise of our hearts, that at the cross you have made, Father, the remedy for all that we have done that has been offensive to you. And, Father, we thank you for showing us grace and making us aware of our need and aware of your answer. We sing this to you, Father, as we pray this in Christ's name. listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.